It's not a matter of letting go. You would if you could. Instead of let it go, we should probably say let it be. John Kabat-Zinn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Secrets of Saturn. I am Jason Lindgren, your host. On this episode, we are doing the Paul is Dead Roundtable. Did something happen to Paul McCartney in 1966, and was he replaced with some sort of double to help carry on the phenomenon that the Beatles were then and still are today? We discuss it with Jim Fetzer, Tina Foster, and Nick Collistrum. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's great to be here, Jason. It's nice to have everyone. Why don't we introduce one at a time?、Uh, Tina, you want to go first? Sure. So、uh, my name is Tina Foster, and I have the Plastic Maca blog spot、uh, that focuses on Paul McCartney and doubles and other some other issues that deal with the New World Order. And、uh, I'm a lawyer in Seattle, and I've been researching the Paul is Dead conspiracy theory since 2008. Hey, wow, fantastic! <laughs> well, certainly the best. That's certainly the best website there is on the subject, Tina. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Nick, you want to go next? Oh, okay. Well, I got into the subject, Nick Collistrum, London,、uh, and、um, I used to live around、uh, some of the sort of Beatles, few Beatles areas, like Abbey Road and so on.、Uh, and、um, I only got into the subject much more recently. Was it 2013? Um, a, a friend put me onto the、uh, memoirs of Billy Sheen's book and started telling me all about it, and I just got drawn into it, fascinated by it. So before that, I had a bit of a conspiracy background of looking at,、um, you know, state-fabricated events、um, like the London bombing and so on. And、uh, I was a member of the London 9/11 Truth Group, and, and、uh, but this seemed something very, very different and much more affirmative and. And sort of fun and upbeat, uh, and uh, so I just somehow ended up doing this book on the subject. I just felt there's a lot of American books, but so why not have an English book on the subject? So mine came out、um, was it last year? Yeah. Awesome, Jim. Well, I'm a retired professor of philosophy who spent 35 years, principally offering courses in logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning. I've published. A couple hundred articles, and as of today, thirty-two books with several forthcoming. When I, when I re- my area of specialization is the philosophy of science, where I earned my PhD in 1970, I began in, in becoming involved in conspiracy research in 1992 in the wake of Oliver Stone's film JFK, where. I was astonished to discover that、uh, the editor in chief of the Journal of the AMA was、uh, on television attacking everyone who'd ever done any serious research on JFK and describing Oliver Stone's film as docu fiction. And while it's not perfect, it's certainly a masterpiece and ought to have been、uh, the picture of the year, without any doubt,、uh, in terms of the Oscars. Had it not been that Jack Valenti, who'd been an aide to Lyndon Johnson, who played a pivotal role in the assassination, had worked against it、uh, in his position as the czar of Hollywood. So, before my retirement in 2006, I'd already published、uh, three collections of expert studies on JFK. 
subsequent and and uh, let's see, yes, actually a book on the, the death of Paul Wellstone. Subsequently, I've just done a huge amount of work on uh, 9/11, uh, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, and other issues, uh, where uh, the Paul Paul McCartney was a relatively recent interest, but where I had a great, great uh, enthusiasm for the Beatles, virtually lifelong. Awesome, thanks, Jim. Now, I'd like to explain exactly what it is we are going to discuss today, and which is the theory that Paul McCartney had died. In 1966, and was replaced during the time of the Beatles being the most popular band in the world. Who would like to take the first step here to explaining what really went on? Well, I can talk about a little bit.、Um, so, back in 1967, a quote rumor started that、um, that Paul McCartney had died in a car crash in late 1966, and it. Sort of made the rounds, but it it became big news in 1969 when it was published in America that Paul had died, and it it became just it, it was a big news story. It was on major networks, and everybody started to research and look for clues. Uh, there, it wasn't so easy to look on. I mean, there was no internet, so it wasn't so easy to compare photos and videos. But so people mostly focused on the clues and the album covers and backmasked messages. And so, at some point, Life magazine went and tracked down for Paul McCartney in Scotland. And did an interview with him, and they asked, "Are you dead?" Which doesn't make any sense. But of course, he said, "No, he's not dead." And so, for a lot of people, that put the whole story to rest.、Mm-hmm. But the Paul is dead conspiracy theory has never gone away because、uh, too many people can see that it's not the same person. So I became involved in two thousand eight. And I thought I thought it wasn't true, and I was like, "Oh, I will just look at some pictures." But I I fell down that rabbit hole so hard, <laughs> and I can see it took me about two days of really intensively studying the pictures to see it. And so I got really involved in that research, and then about a year later, in two thousand nine, some forensic scientists from Italy. Published an article in Wired Italia, talking about the forensic proof that Paul was replaced. So they talked about different skull shapes, and they were comparing pictures from '67 and later, and '60, you know, in bef- '66 and before. So they're trying to、uh, figure out when the switch took place. But they noticed differences in the ears, and the nose, and the jawline, the teeth. Palette, and there were just too many differences to be the same person. And also, back in '69, a professor named、uh, Dr. Henry Truby did voice prints of three Beatles songs. So he did "Yesterday," "Penny Lane," and "Hey Jude," and found three different voice prints. So、uh, there, there's actually some pretty. Good proof that Paul was replaced.、Uh, 
I mean, we have some scientific evidence, I mean, voice prints and forensic analysis, biometrics, that they are approved of a replacement. So where it goes from there is more based on our own research and looking at the clues and thinking about motivations of what and why it could have happened. Uh, I don't personally believe the car crash story. I think that's disinformation. But really, all we have is proof of replacement. I admit that it's conjecture what happens to him exactly. We'll probably never know. Now, is there any evidence at all as to what may have happened to the original James Paul McCartney in 1966? Is there anything that anyone has ever come out with? the car crash is the one I've heard, but what is there out there right now? Well, there have been, there's a film called uh, The Condensed Cream of the Beatles that came out in 1974, and it has a storyline in pictures. It's like a cartoon, and it has it has really disturbing images, and it has, a, a, again, a bullet hole through a car window, uh, it looks like a dead body of Paul. It has images of Illuminati and keeping silent. And it's even like Pyramid Films who produced it. So there's a lot of really dark imagery. It looks like there was some sort of a car chase, a car crash, somebody getting shot, and then the Illuminati being behind it. <laughs> so, and, and also there are other, there's album art that you know, shows that Paul was replaced or is, is no longer with us. And there's back mask messages and, um, and reverse speech. So they're, they're two different things that talk about Paul is bloody, Paul is dead, miss him, miss him, miss him, miss him. You know, um, there, there are tons of things like that. There are like at least 400 clues about Paul being dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the music and the album covers. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's and and just yeah. there's like just there's too much. So where there's smoke, there's fire. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Nick or Jim, do you have anything to? Um, uh, well, if if we look at the uh, the moments of the great discontinuity, if I may come in here, uh, the terrific change that happened at the beginning of September '66, uh, we have the world's most famous popular band suddenly. It can never sell another, another ticket. Suddenly, it can never do another concert. Suddenly, the Fab Four, who have always been interviewed together, everyone loves seeing the four of them together, suddenly, they're only ever interviewed again separately. Okay? And they all loved dressing up in the same stylish clothes when they appear on the, on the shows. And from then on, after, say, the second week of August, uh, of September 66, they all dress differently. Uh, and th- th- there's no longer the same t- togetherness. Uh, and and um, so that, that is the f- maybe the first thing to be explained. That there's a huge change. And if you're told, oh, they got tired of, they got tired of touring in public or it's too much, uh, is that really adequate to explain this enormous change uh, that, uh, that, uh, that sudden ending of Beatlemania, okay? For three years, the whole of planet Earth was gripped in this very intense Beatlemania, uh, endlessly hearing the songs, uh, and the sound of the Fab Four together, right? It was a, a sound that uh, had 
uh, say Lennon and Paul singing together into the same microphone, and that will never ever happen again. You get them, uh, and you see them say on, on, on a rooftop. Uh, just once at a rooftop concert, and the four of them are there. It's the only time I think the four after '66, the four ever appear together, uh, and they're they're on separate separate microphones some distance away even then you can still see the character supposed to be Paul is much bigger than the others even though he's uh, quite quite a bit separate um, so I, I would say there is that huge sudden change that that, uh, that as it were needs to be accounted for and then the whole of the month of October September October after that Paul is just not there he, he hasn't got any appointments he's just not to be seen you know and then very cautiously in November, you start to get images of the new guy looking rather shy with a moustache. Uh, and and, and uh, he starts to make his appearance. Uh, and uh, uh, the initial pictures, he doesn't really look at all like the old Paul. And uh, later on, in the, in the spring and summer of the next year, 67, he does get to look a bit... He does get to look more like a happy and self-confident Beatle. Uh, and... and you know, he can sort of pass, pass as being uh, the guy who used to be Paul. But um, I suggest that the pictures we saw at the end of 66 is a new guy with a much thinner face, more cerebral intellectual guy who uh, who writes, probably writes and composes music um, and, and, and uh, uh, with this thin, thinner face that, that has, to have, has to have intensive surgery and Botox stuff start to look like the old Paul, you know. Jim, what do you think? Well, the basic theory uh, is that Paul died in 1966. The date most commonly cited is 9-11, ironically, and that uh, this explains why the following month, Brian Epstein, their manager, announced the Beatles would no longer tour, otherwise inexplicable, because every rock band, you know, gets a great shot of adrenaline from performing before a live audience. The explanation he gave was uh, pathetic to which that they couldn't hear their own music. But that's not the point at all. They hear their own music all the time. They don't go out and perform between 20 or 30,000 adoring fans to hear their own music. As, as, as Nick has suggested, then we have uh, the gradual emergence of the individual uh, typically referred to as fall, F-A-U-L, for fake Paul in, in late November and December. Uh, then we get some group shots. I mean, the, the evidence is really rather fascinating that we'll discuss in detail as we proceed. But the idea was that uh, Paul died in that the question became, what then of the band? This was a huge uh, enterprise, uh, you know, a billion-dollar operation, essentially. And in order to uh, preserve uh, the, 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 the business, essentially, they needed a replacement. They happened to have one, uh, uh, someone who would be plausible in the role. And we'll discuss all that in greater detail. But as as Tina has uh, alluded, there were all kinds of signs and signals in their music itself, but probably most significantly the cover of the Sgt. Pepper album, which I expect we will also scrutinize yeah, right. in the sequel. Right. Yeah. So, going with the theory that he was indeed replaced, since we don't know exactly what would have happened to the original Paul McCartney, the assumption is... 
minimally, he's no longer involved with the Beatles, which, as, as was stated, just money coming out the wazoo. Biggest thing ever. So, obviously, if something occurred, they'd want to keep that going, if at all possible. I've heard people disputing this. They said, for example, with the Stones, when Brian Jones died, they announced it, and they got a replacement. Uh, some people don't believe that the Beatles would have to get, uh, would, would have to keep the thing secret to keep going. And they asked me, well, why couldn't they just have, uh, you know, announced Paul had died and got a replacement? If this new guy was so good, why couldn't they just get him in and say he's a replacement? Um, uh, my understanding is that there were huge revenues from the Beatles sales, and it would have been too much of a risk. But um, could I ask Tina if she's got a view on this? Do I do. It- Uh, Okay, well, and from my research, I think that (laughs) it was more about social engineering. Yeah, the money was great, but I I I think that was a secondary motive. I think that Paul McCartney and the other Beatles were so popular, and they had a world stage, and they were not... Illuminati puppets, okay? They were talking out against the Vietnam War. Uh, Paul was apparently interested in writing the score for Rush to Judgment, which questioned the JFK assassination. Yeah, right, yeah. He, um, you know, they wrote uh, Taxman, which was very critical of government policies. They, They were also writing very spiritual music and taking things, in my opinion, towards a higher consciousness using music. So there were different motivations. I mean, really pick one. Just speaking out against the Vietnam War or JFK assassination official story would be enough, in my opinion, that these very popular people who had a lot of influence and had a world stage, if they were not controlled and were not towing the line, that they would, something would have to happen. Either they get killed and that's it or silent somehow or take the opportunity to use that popularity to influence people in the way that the elites wanted and i think that's what happened so i think that this band was hijacked i think that the tavistock institute probably had some influence over them got involved in it and they took it towards uh, promoting drugs, which LSD was a, a brainwashing tool, a psychochemical warfare agent, as it's been described. And Paul, the replacement Paul, was the first British pop star to speak about taking it. And this was back in you know July of 67. And a lot of people got exposed to it. They got interested in taking it. Well, that was the summer of love and peace, wasn't it? Yeah, and um, and so and also then the music, in my opinion, went from ascent to descent. And the and the best example to me of that is Helter Skelter, which was purposely degraded. So then they're using music in combination with drugs for social engineering. Now, I, I was a huge Beatle fan. I did a, a radio, I've done about five, maybe six radio shows now. And one longest uh, enduring was on revereradio.com, 
where I did 880 shows, and every single one began and, and broke with Beatles and ended with Beatles music. Uh, uh, when I moved to NBC Media Broadcasting Center in, in January 2015, which was a video show where I recognized the enormous benefits of being able to present visually the evidence I was talking about. I actually initiated that with an interview with Nick. He was my very first guest on The Real Deal on NBC. What we talked about, you know, guess what? Paul McCartney. Now, what got me into it was twofold. One, I had a long-term correspondence with Claire Coon, who for a year and a half at least, had badgered me to look into the question of whether or not Paul had died. She has a very elaborate blog about it. Uh, she's revised it many times. It includes a, a, a sketch by John Lennon that's rather fascinating because it's it shows a figure that seems to have his, his skull split open and gore coming out, raising questions of what could this possibly mean. It doesn't look like it's something one would just dream up. You know, that would be more likely to have been inspired by true events. But it was when uh, it was when an entity called the the Hollywood Inquirer, which may or may not be a bona fide outlet, it's been disputed, for example, by another associate of mine, Kevin Barrett, where we were both a publishing on Veterans Today at the time, and when I published an article that was inspired by this uh, interview purportedly with with uh, with uh, Ringo Starr, where he explained that when Paul died, we all panicked, claims Ringo, obviously very emotional. We didn't know what to do, and Brian Epstein, our manager, suggested that we hire Billy Shears as a temporary solution. It was supposed to last only a week or two, but time went by and nobody seemed to notice, so we kept playing along. Billy turned out to be a pretty good musician, and he was able to perform almost better than Paul. The only problem was he couldn't get along with John at all. Now, this intrigued me. It had the, a certain ring of truth, given everything that Claire had, had, had primed me to contemplate. Uh, and I published an article about it in Veterans Today, which, Paul, which Kevin Barrett... Uh, savagely attacked. I mean, he he was implying I'd completely lost my mind by proposing this. And I uh, can't recall if then I had already discovered the work of the Italian forensic scientist to which Tina alluded, where they demonstrate that they, they set out to disprove the hypothesis that Paul had died which had become, uh, you know, such a sensation within the Beatles community uh, because of all the clues and the music and so forth and the album. Uh, and when I discovered their work, it, it, for me it cinched it because they have different teeth, different palates, the shape and size of their skulls is different, their ears are different. And I discovered a photograph, one of Paul with Jane Asher, to whom he'd been engaged, where they're very closely near to the same height, and another of Paul with Jane Asher, where Paul is three or four inches taller than Jane. Well, you can't have one person uh, who is, has different teeth, different palates, different shape and size of the skull and so forth at approximately the same period of their lives. We all know that as we grow and develop from, from infants to toddlers to children to adults, 
that our height changes, increases, that, that our teeth change. We lose our baby teeth, acquire our adult teeth, and a host of other changes take place. But these photographs and comparisons were all of uh, adults, and they were clearly not ones that were going to be subject to the kind of variation we find in normal growth and development. And since you can't have uh, two, two persons be the same person with such different features, for me that was conclusive. For whatever reason, Kevin held off forever, though he's now come around. He, he not so long ago conceded to me that I'd been correct about Paul after all. But, you know, it's so seemingly overwhelming when you're talking about someone who may be the most uh, conspicuous figure in the world, most closely scrutinized, where when I uh, published uh, four chapters about it in uh, my first uh, relatively recent uh, uh, first of a series of books about uh, these issues. Uh, when Sandy Hook was supposed to be the one, uh, the original, which was entitled Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, and the series editor, Mike Palachek, thought it would be great to have the sequel discussing the moon landing, Paul McCartney, even the Holocaust, entitled, and I suppose we didn't go to the moon either, meaning people would be so incredulous that nobody had died at Sandy Hook, they'd ask, and I suppose we didn't go to the moon either, you know, in a state of incredulity that anyone could have suggest such a thing. But there's not only a massive evidence we didn't go to the moon in that book, but four chapters about Paul, uh, and, and it seems to me uh, one of them was an English translation of the, the Italian study, uh, yeah. which, you know, in my opinion, I think we all are inclined to agree is decisive. And where, where now I feel actually even more comfortable that this, uh, even if the Hollywood Inquirer is some kind of uh, invention, uh, a website uh, that is an appropriate way to get information out when you want to get it out to the public without having a specific attribution. So I'm inclined to think it was authentic. And uh, I uh, Tina mentions he, 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 uh, elsewhere, and, and Nick has observed that, that Ringo, at a recent uh, music awards, uh, actually uh, stated during an interview that he was the last remaining Beatle, even though the presumptive Paul McCartney was there present at the time. Uh, which of course, is indicative of his uh, knowledge, uh, superior knowledge over the public in general, that he was indeed the only remaining live Beatle after John was assassinated and George died and Paul had long since gone on to greener pastures. We, we'll get into different theories about what was involved here, but I, that, this is what drew me into it, being a huge Beatles fan. Uh, and then, you know, the more I studied the cover and the photographic evidence, the more I convinced I became that this indeed was uh, just as those rumors had it, that Paul had right. had been replaced, and the whole thing was utterly fascinating. And most of the world couldn't even open their mind, not even a, a guy who's a conspiracy uh, student like Kevin Barrett found this was just too much for him to handle. <laughs> that, that's interesting, That just the power of the Beatles, their, their whole mystique, that somebody would, who's, who's already very, very good at challenging mainstream authority, couldn't even grasp this one. It was just, no, this is too much for me. Yeah, that was absolutely... It's time and place when it's appropriate, isn't it? To, to look into things, uh, and it starts to disturb people. But, um, uh, Jason, if we come back to uh, looking at what, what 
what sort of evidence there is for something happening to Paul, um, uh, and is there any kind of physical evidence, or is it just a story? I think that was one issue that, that Tina raised. Uh, do we just find the evidence in the, in the stories and clues in the songs? Um, one, one startling bit of physical evidence turned up in the last year or two, quite surprisingly, uh, and that was the, the car, this um, Aston Martin car, which I'd like to uh, bring up. Um, and um, this is, because they're collector's items, these Aston Martins, each one has a history, a recorded biography of everyone who's owned it, right? And this was owned by Macca, and it goes back to 1964 when Paul McCartney bought it, okay? Ancient Aston Martin DBS, and it's a, 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 a blue, a blue colour, and Paul, Paul bought it because he likes it in a James Bond movie. It was the car to have, you know. <laughs> and the urban legend has that, uh, well, Tina's first out on this, I appreciate, that, that one evening he was fed up and he went out driving in it and he drove too fast and, and he had this terrible crash. And that crash, for example, in the song uh, Death Cab for Cutie at the end of Magical Mystery Tour, sung by uh, Viv Stanshaw, Bonzo Bob Dog Band, that gives a, a, a vivid account of driving too fast. Cutie is, is the cute beetle, that, that's Paul, he was called it the cutie, uh, and uh, he was just zooming along uh, too quickly, and um, the traffic lights changed or whatever, but the, 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 the people in the car got killed. And um, an Italian guy bought this car, um, and, and um, he, uh, uh, a chap called Walter Baroni of Milan, and uh, he, it was left in a garage or something. Uh, a fool didn't use it anymore. And, and he went over to England and, and bought it. And uh, he, could, he could see in the records of the car and also traces that it had had a big crash in the front. Okay? Uh, so there, there is a collision in the history of this car, a crash. And also it dates it as not, is in 66. Quote. The incident dates back to 1966 with almost 100% certainty. That's from the service records of the car. So um, uh, there's debate about is this crash big enough to actually kill the driver? But, um, you know, that's a pretty good start to having a bit of uh, e evidence. Um, by the way, he paid 300 grand for, um, for, 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 for it. Uh, and the car, as originally owned by Paul McCartney, uh, and it sports an armor plate. 64 Mac, um, so um, this this looks like a bit of physical confirmation of, of the primal urban legend. Just to refine Nick's version of the story, where I know Tina has a, a very different take on this, and, and you want to <clears throat> invite her uh, discussion about this very point, but my understanding, and it's very specifically delineated in some of the many blogs out there, is that, uh, that Paul and John had a fight during a session at the studio, that Paul left in a huff. It was raining. As he was driving, there was a young woman at the side of the road who was getting very wet. He stopped and offered her a, a ride. Her name was Rita, that she was so excited about being in the vehicle with Paul McCartney that he, she distracted him, and he ran a light that the car was hit severely, 
Uh, he was trapped in the car. They couldn't get him out because of the way that the door was wedged. So it wasn't the it wasn't the accident per se that killed him. It, Rita got out. Paul was calling out, "Help me! Help me! Get me out!" But nobody could do anything. Mo nobody really knew who it was. The car caught fire, and Paul burned to death in the car. Now. This, I believe, is in fact what actually happened. But I know that Tina has a very different take, so I won't, we want yeah. to have. Just by, by the way, John was out of the country filming, so it would have been Ringo and George who were around. If we want to believe this happened, of uh, some sort of row or stressful scene. Um, well, the story John... would have it that you know who. Uh, Brian Epstein or whoever, you know, paid off a few bobbies or whatever to keep the story quiet. And it yeah. made, uh, you know, made the newspapers, even uh. the tabloids, although the, an accident may have been reported, his identity most certainly was not. But I think Tina has a lot to add here of her take. Yeah, uh, that story, as far as I know, originates from Fred Labore's newspaper article when he heard Tom Zarsky talking on the radio to Russ Gibb in October of 69 uh, about Paul being killed. So a uh, friend Labor went and come through the, the song clues and looked at the album art. And he came up with that theory of the car crash, which it, but he thought that Paul's head had been sheared off and he was, quote, deader than a doornail. So... <laughs> You know, that story may or may not be true. I mean, I think he just came up with it from his own research from the clues. Now, my issue with the car accident story is that Paul was playing Seattle in August on August 25th of 1966. So you yeah. have Paul all the way up till August 25th. Then there's two days off time. And then they make their appearance in uh, L.A. on August 28th, and that yeah. is fall. So how uh -huh. do you find a replacement that fast in two days? No, I think they had fall waiting in the weeds. And no, I, I think that's Tina. Uh, they may have sometimes subbed in someone else if Paul was ill or whatever. And it could be that it would have been the same party who eventually replaced him. But I would dispute your claim. Uh, the, the, the change, the announcement by Brian Epstein fits with a death in September, uh, not something going funny business going on in August. Uh, frankly, that just doesn't make any sense to me at all, other than that he may have had a sub at the time, and it might turn out to have been the same person. Uh, Nick has been very good about uh, documenting the emergence of the replacement for Paul, in a series of photographs in November, December, and then you get this group photo shoot that's done in an odd way so as not to reveal details or specifics of their facial features. So I would take exception to your claim, not that you may be correct that someone other than Paul was uh, at this earlier event, but that that was not the permanent replacement, which wouldn't have any necessity to take place until after Paul actually was no longer available to perform. Right. Well, mm -hmm. see, that's what I'm saying is August 28th was Fall's debut. Yeah. They played the Candlestick show the next day, which was their last concert and did not go well. And then Brian Epstein announced on 9-11 that they would never play live again. No, it was in October, not September. No, no, 9-11. That's my research. September 11th. 
Well, well, hang on, just let me come in here. First of all, the clues, just, I'd just like to quote one or two songs. Uh, Ringo's song, Don't Pass Me By, has, You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. This is about the person who he says he loves more than anyone else and can't believe that um, he isn't going to come back anymore. This true love, you, you know, um, don't you, does it mean you don't love me anymore? Uh, and and, and uh, I'm just waiting to hear from you. It's a song about some sort of true love that's departed. And then he says, you're in a car crash and you lost your hair. And then um, Lennon's nightmarish song, Come Together, has... Here come all flat top, he come grooving up slowly. Uh, and this, this is kind of metaphorical language, but it could be some sort of image of his head getting, uh, not, 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 top of his head getting knocked off. Yeah, um, I think that's where Fred Labore got it. Yeah. Anyway, let's come back to your interesting suggestion about the end of August. Um, I, I would say that in the American tour, you do get one or two people looking very much like doubles of Paul or replacements coming in um, and possibly the, uh, this is disputed, possibly the last interview in Los Angeles there's a guy with a very round face who people think is not, might not be the original Paul and certainly there's an airport shot somewhere, I think he's coming off the, they're coming off the plane in Los Angeles and you see the Fab Four coming down and there is some sort of some guy replacing, replacement of Paul definitely there um, but I think you, Tina, are referring to some extra tall guy who's in one of the concerts. Is that right? He's much he's taller than he should be. Uh, do you mean at the candlestick or do you mean at the L.A. press conference? Well, you're making the statement that, that Fall has definitely appeared uh, at um, well, when you said he appeared. Yeah. Was that at the last candlestick? Was that the last concert? Can, that, candlestick that was... Concert? Yeah, that was the day before the last concert. So that was, yeah. And, yeah. and there were lots of allusions to doubles and decoys and their image not being like the real image. And sometimes you can't tell the would-bees from the real thing. It's a very strange press conference with lots yeah. of clues. And in my opinion, that is Fall's debut. Doubles stand-ins were used throughout the uh especially the earlier Beatles career, because they had to be flying all over the place and doing all these press conferences and all these shows and just meet and greets. Uh, is there any documented evidence? That's a very important question. Uh, and there's a fairly new book called The Beatles Conspiracy by David Malocco, which um, uh, came out just about the time my book was being published. And it, it definitely has an interview with um, somebody who sees... A double. This is why the, the real Paul McCartney is around. In other words, in 1966, and this sort of rent boy, because uh, um, you know Brian Epstein hired these sort of boys from himself, uh, and uh, he, he he was in Belgravia. It's a posh area of London, and this guy Pat Conroy was walking up the steps, and he saw someone uh, smiling and coming out, looking like Paul McCartney. Uh, but um, he always uh, he, he sensed that it wasn't quite the same guy, and he asked Epstein, uh, and and and, uh, and Epstein said, um, Brian said that's not Paul. He's a lookalike. Bring him on tour with us to America. And Conroy then says, Why are you using a lookalike? Uh, and and uh, then he said, Paul isn't always well, and if he can't perform for any of the concerts, we use Bill. Now, that is using a double, and it's not the same as having a replacement, but it is interestingly important 
that uh, we've got a, a published account of of Epstein explaining why he takes a double with him to to America for times when Paul can't cope with the stress, you know. Uh, so, so I, I think that that's that's quite an important example of of, of a double being used. Um, uh, may I add to what Tina has said that um, I, I did research of the, uh, the, the question: When do we last see the real Paul? Okay, and there's an interview uh, with Melody Maker, I think Penny Valentine, and she does an interview with Paul after he's got back from America, uh, and uh, that's published on, on the 10th of September which is basically the days before he disappears, just around the time. Uh, and so his interview is given in the first week of September, and he's his normal, bright, cheerful self, and uh, Penny Valentine's obviously charmed by him. And, um, by the way, in November, she publishes a list of the best-looking pop stars, uh, who are the best-looking, she reckons Paul is number, number one. Uh, so she gave a cheerful... Uh, well, Paul gave a cheerful interview with her, which didn't indicate that the band was breaking up or anything, but just said we were, you know, taking a break and uh, looking at some different stuff. Uh, and and uh, I, I saw that as evidence that the real Paul is still alive. Um, I, I don't think she could have been, she would have been taken in if by any sort of double. So I, I would say doubles are certainly appearing in that American tour, but the real Paul is still there. Well, I've seen the Melody Maker pictures, and I don't think that's the real Paul. So, in my opinion, the last time we see him is the Seattle concert. And it's fine if they're using doubles as decoys during the height of Beatlemania. But my issue is that, from my research, you do not see the real Paul McCartney after Seattle, after August 25th. So, you know, but, you know, it... It's definitely by December. I, I don't think anybody's going to disagree that the the person who gave the interview outside of the EMI studios in December of '66 that looks like Denny Lane, in my opinion, is is the real Paul. So it, you know, there's that gray area of when the replacement took, when the permanent replacement took place, because I do think he was imposter replaced. On a so about Demi Lane? Oh, 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 December yeah. 66. Yeah, so there's an interview in December of 66 of the Beatles coming into the EMI studios to record. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you mean. And yeah. that's that's not Paul. And I, I've never seen anybody no, disagree not, no. about that one. So there's that gray area between, you know, the end of the U.S. tour and... September of 66, there is a gray area in there about is that Paul or not, that by the end of 66, pretty much everybody agrees, okay, that's not Paul anymore. So the guy with the mustache, from from my research and from my photo analysis, it looks a lot like Denny Lane. And I think we've got a clue with the song Penny Lane that Denny Lane was at least a a temporary stand-in. I mean, really, all he needs to do is make some appearances. I mean... Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like he has to be a full-time fall at all, but, you know, right. <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> right. Well, in September 66, the first sort of objective evidence, what you might say, there's, a, there's Tony Barrow, who was uh, a spokesperson for the NEMS, uh, the Musical Society, uh, and he said he received more than a dozen calls from reporters asking if Paul was still among the living, uh, and that was his... Real book, the real Beatles story of 2011. Uh, so uh, that was publicly when people 
um, first began to mull over, you know, was he still alive? Uh, and Epstein was besieged at his house by fans demanding when there was going to be a new Beatles tour, uh, and, and you really couldn't tell them. Um, uh, and, and then, but then, with the newcomer, they managed to get together sufficiently to bring out the. Uh, <coughs> well, they, they did a couple of of, of, of short of singles, didn't they? Uh, just, and then they brought up. Yeah. Just to return to that uh, interview that uh, Kevin Barrett couldn't accept, uh, it continues with Ringo saying that the entire Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band album was awash with Paula's Dead Clues. The Beatles had indeed officially formed a new band featuring a fictional member named Billy Shears, which happened to be the actual name of Paul's replacement. Quote, we felt guilty about the deception, added Ringo Starr. We wanted to tell the world the truth, but we were afraid of the reactions it would provoke. We thought the whole planet was going to hate us for all the lies we had told. So we kept lying but sending subtle clues to relieve our consciousness. When the first rumors finally began about the whole thing, we felt very nervous and started fighting a lot with each other. At some point, it was too much for John, and he decided to leave the band. Now, the cover of the Beatles album is a funeral, and the funeral is evidently for someone who played a left-handed guitar. You see the original Beatles in dark on the side, then you see the resplendent figures of Sergeant, uh, the members of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Paul is decidedly taller than he ought to be if he were uh, the, the original James Paul McCartney. And I just don't see how anyone could dispute that that album was intended to introduce the one and only Billy Shears as a permanent replacement of Paul James Paul McCartney. So, you know, I think that that is the decisive public statement affirmation by the Beatles, as close as they get, apart from other yeah. clues, like yeah, in right. I Am a Walrus, here's another clue for you all, the walruses, Paul and, of course, the Abbey Road album, where you have the four figures that have been suggested represent uh, uh, John dressed in white as a clergyman, Ringo dressed in black, The Undertaker, George in denim and a shirt, The Gravedigger, and Paul with no feet and out of step, The Corpse. I mean, I'll be interested. I, I imagine all, all three of us are very much uh, in agreement with what I've just sketched here. But I'd be glad to hear if Tina had, takes any exception. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, I think that the on the Sgt. Pepper album, it's definitely a funeral. Uh, I think that the old Beatles are actually wax effigies. And uh, of note is Aleister Crowley being on the album cover, too, who was a co-founder of the Tavistock Institute. Yeah, but of course, Tina, look at all the figures there. What are there, 50 different figures there? So to pick up Alistair Crowley's yeah. kind of well, arbitrary, it seems no. no, because a lot of them on their, like, Jane Mansfield had been killed. I mean, it's like everybody on there has, is on there for a reason, if you dig into their history. And I, yeah. I do have something on the blog about that. Well, but, well, go, ahead, go ahead and elaborate on it. I'm sure the audience would be fascinated to hear well, you know, I have it on the blog about these people's histories and their connections and why reasons why they might be included on the album cover of Sgt. Pepper. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it's clearly a funeral. It's uh, and then Abbey Road also has the White Beetle. Um, you know, it has uh, McCartney smoking with his left, his right hand when everybody knows that Paul was a left-hander. So all sorts of clues. I mean, even Let It Be with uh, Red being behind the picture of McCartney, uh, people latched onto. And that photo is definitely, all those photos were manipulated from the original to make uh, McCartney's head look round or like the original and um, yeah, I mean, we talked about some of the song clues. Uh, so. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, there are just tons of song clues. I mean, you mentioned I am the walrus, and you know, you've been a naughty boy. You let your face grow long. Well, that's that's like a clue that Mc, you know the replacement of McCartney. His face is longer and narrower. So there's all sorts of evidence of photo tampering. Even the forensic, the Italian forensic scientist uh, pointed out that they they discovered evidence of photo tampering. So, what, where? In in pictures from '67 that. It, oh, they that they got gone back to try to change the image of Paul to look more like Fall. Right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Now, notice yeah, you see, on the cover. You see a lot of the- so you see a lot of that in the Beatles' monthly uh, journal, if you look through it month by month. Um, even the I, 66 pictures of Paul, the, the face seems a bit elongated, as if they were kind of right. uh, preparing for what was to come. Uh, no, and, no, and then, no, it's not, I think it's done retrospectively, Nick, myself. Well, yeah, but this comes out monthly, this, this journal. Yeah, I yeah, think, but right? you have uh, the, original isu- the original issues? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about the original issues. And then, no, 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 no. I mean that you ha- didn't obtain from the internet, but that you had physically obtained at the time. Yeah, physically, physically, uh, real, actual um, journals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I did do, all my do, research. Do, do you have those, Nick? I did all my research for the British Library newspaper room, which has access to. Okay, to, very good. Okay, very good. So because... they bring you out real paper journals. You see, um, and and. Uh, then you get uh, you get moustache painted on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the real old old Paul has a moustache painted on, and so they're fiddling about, kind of telling you that um, uh, that, that uh, something fun is going on. And I, I would recommend if people want to want to be reminded what the old Paul really looked like, uh, look at uh, look at videos and films because they're you know the images can't be changed really. You, you can see the how round his face was. I think most of the human race is kind of forgotten what the original Paul looked like because we're so used to the new guys. Yes, I think that's right, yeah. Well, just to return to the cover momentarily, and it may well be Tina wants to say more about it, but I mean, across the grave it says Beatles. They're burying the Beatles. There's a left-handed guitar. This is because Paul is dead. On the left you have the four Beatles, the original in black, and then you have the resplendent band. I mean, this seems to me in retrospect to be decisive about, you know, that they're coming clean they're, they formed a new band now. They're calling Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because the Beatles are gone. They can no longer exist when one of their key founding members is now dead. Yeah, okay. Uh, if I could just come back to the, this crucial question of, of when it happened, because obviously the date of 9-11, if we're going to b- believe September 11th, that would have a huge meaning that it didn't have then. Uh, yeah. It would mean a lot to us, if perchance. So let me just say what, what, what I found. Uh, first of all, I've already mentioned 
the interview by Penny Valentine, Disco Music Echo, who was published on the 10th. Uh, so she was sitting in a room with him, uh, and I'd, I'd be very surprised if what Tina suggested that, that some new replacement could come in and, and she wouldn't tell the difference, you know, face to face, having a chat with him. Uh, and then the next thing is, on the 13th, you get the big yearly Melody Maker Awards ceremony. Now, this was in a posh new place in London called the, the, the Post Office Tower. Uh, and who was winning the, the big awards? It described how Tom Jones pushed Cliff Richard off the uh, number one spot for, for vocalists. And uh, Paul was getting a whole load of awards. And um, he's actually get, they were actually getting their 20th platinum album with, with, with Revolver. So it was an absolutely awesome achievement for a 24-year-old uh, young man. Uh, and um, if indeed, as Tina suggested, he never came back from America... Uh, if, if he was gone, um, you know, right from the end of August, uh, I wouldn't expect the, the, the newspaper magazines, uh, like Melody Maker, for example, to advertise the whole uh, awards ceremony uh, with the Beatles getting a whole lot of awards if the cat- catastrophe had already happened and was known to have happened, if Paul literally wasn't around then. As I, as I read the story... Uh, that catastrophe happened just days before the Melody Maker Award, uh, just a day or two before, uh, for example, on the Sunday the 11th, uh, and uh, they had to very quickly uh, make up a story. Uh, and the way the whole Melody Maker ceremony was uh, arranged, uh, I would say no journalists were really there. Uh, Paul certainly wasn't there. Uh, and you get very stilted-looking photographs that are somehow put out and, and, and stories put out uh, as if people weren't really there. Well, Fall has done many interviews where the interviewer thought he was the real Paul McCartney. So saying yeah. that because one person thought he was the real Paul, it may or may not mean anything. But, I mean, don't we all agree that the media is controlled to a certain extent? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I just because interviewers like, oh, that's Paul McCartney. I mean, I mean, they also report fake news every day. So why would that be any different? Well, it is, yeah. yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. Well, it's a good question. Why, it's a good question why they'd be. It's a good question why they'd be giving fake reports about the Beatles for God's sake. I mean, this is not like political news about the Orlando shooting or Boston well, bombing or Sandy Hook. I mean, there's no question that the, the media is highly controlled and totally unreliable these days, especially after the Smith-Mutt Act, which was uh, passed in 1948 to preclude the use of the techniques of propaganda and disinformation within the United States that were being used by the intelligence agencies without, was rescinded, nullified by the National Defense Appropriations Act of 2013. I know you have a more sinister interpretation of all of this and of the Beatles as some kind of psyop, Tina, so I'm sure we all would be interested in hearing your elaboration. Well, what I'd like to ask actually first to, to lead into that is, if Paul McCartney was replaced, who was he replaced with and why? And Tina, go ahead and explain that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that this became very politicized. So why would... So your first question is, why would the media lie about Paul McCartney? And, and why would they? Why would this even be an issue? Why, why do they continue this lie that that fall is Paul and what's the motivation behind it? Well, yeah, in my opinion, this band was hijacked for 
for social engineering. So they, I think the Tavistock Institute got involved because the original Beatles were not promoting the New World Order agenda. They were not interested in that. They weren't interested in telling people what to do. They weren't going to promote drugs. They, they weren't going to tell people not to drink. They were just, that, that's not their place. And so I also think that, you know, when they were questioning the Vietnam War, like we talked about, and they were just starting to cause problems and they were too yeah. popular. So yeah, okay. how, how, about, something... how about who he was? Um, do you want to say anything about who this new guy was, Jenna? I mean, I think he was just an Illuminati-controlled puppet. I think that they used Paul McCartney's name and his popularity to push an agenda. In that way, who, 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 who was the replacement? Who's the person who replaced him? You know, who was Paul? Who was I, I think Denny Lane was at least a temporary replacement. Yeah. And you know, we've looked at things like the OPP patch, the Ontario Provincial Police, which was photo tampered on the Sgt. Pepper album to look like OPD, which was officially pronounced dead. But yeah. we looked at the patch and be like, well, is that a clue to where Fall came from? Is he Canadian pretending to be English? I mean, I don't know. That, the- that, that seemed just a straightforward artistic uh, license to, you know, make it thematic with a cover. I mean, you know, that they wanted something that indicated officially pronounced dead. So they yeah. altered the patch. I don't think it indicates any Canadian origin of anything. That was simply a convenient way to do it imagistically. Well, that yeah, may or may not be true. <laughs> it would seem to have some sort of Scottish origins. You think of the Mull of Kintyre song, the tremendous power of that. His idea of claim that it was his home. And some people think he's got more of a Scottish than a Liverpool accent. Uh, but um, it, it's a bit hard to tell. But uh, it still remains an amazing enigma. He's like the man who came out of nowhere. He walks through a plate glass plate onto history, uh, and he was a versatile session musician. That's about all we can say. Uh, and he, it may be he was on those Billy Pepperpot albums, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, that, that, uh, that never had any image on the cover. And mysteriously, there's no record of that group, Billy Pepper and Pepperpot's, performing in Liverpool or anywhere else. They're not on the stage anywhere. So, but he might have been producing those, those albums. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, so it, it, it certainly remains a mystery. Um, there's a talk about this guy, Phil Ackrell, who's one possible. Uh, he was in the group The Diplomats. And as you say, Denny Lane uh, played with him. And Denny Lane then moved into the Moody Blues, didn't he? Uh, and, and Phil Ackram might have disappeared. To be a candidate to the replacement, you've got to disappear. The character has to disappear, you know, in 66, um, which is kind of tricky. Uh, so, so that's one, one possibility. Another possibility is the 1965 Paul McCartney lookalike contest where I think they scouted for a, a Paul McCartney replacement. I mean, it's possible. I don't know for sure. And where did but, that happen? Do you have real documentary evidence of it really happening? Yeah, Keith Allison was the winner and he was promoted. But I think that whoever they scouted... Um, where, did, where did it happen? This, on, uh, I, I don't remember off, off the top of my head where that oh, was. Because right. that, that is uh, very much an urban myth of that to look like talent and different books have different stories 
Um, but you feel it really happened? It was a look-alike contest. Well, that was my research that it did, and I think they yeah. might have scouted for the replacement, but that person never would have appeared publicly. He would have just been taken quietly and, okay, we're going to start prepping you. Yeah. So that, oh, Keith Allison is the winner. Oh, look over here at this guy. Well, we quietly prepare Billy Shears or whatever his name is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's a um, misdirection. Yeah. It seems it seems to me that uh, they had long since noticed that a, a, a session musician bore a striking resemblance to Paul. It is the person referred to as Billy Shears, who even has a memoir with which Nick is very familiar. Uh, it seems to me it turns out that Billy was actually an even better musician than Paul. And that part of John's resentment to to Billy was that he was having such a dramatic influence on the Beatles and the direction their music was taking. A lot of it before the the apparent death of Paul was, let's call it bubblegum music of an extremely high quality. I want to hold your hand, love me (laughs) too, you know. Uh, But after that, they go in all these different directions. Listen to the White Album. The White Album is so extraordinary because it's as though they set out to do a composition of every different type of music you can find on the face of Earth. And the overwhelming majority of them are truly quite extraordinary. There are a few that many have suggested would have been better excluded. But it seems to me this guy was actually a musical genius, extraordinary, versatile. He was known as the man of a thousand voices because he could imitate anyone's voice, that they had to send him to Africa to have some minor cosmetic surgery done in order to make him appear more like Paul. But, of course, you couldn't alter his height. Clara's observed that he's often been photographed wearing an earpiece, a fake earpiece, which is absurd if this weren't, of course, a replacement, but we all agree it was a replacement. An interesting observation was made by uh, uh, my colleague Gary King, who discovered that there was uh, there were three different amputee actors playing the same person, Jeff Bauman, in, in, in the Boston bombing, where Jeff Bauman, number one, who was on the scene yeah. at the time, is missing his legs below the knee, and, yeah. and the left little finger on his left hand, Jeff Bauman, number two, is missing his legs above the knee and has all ten fingers. Jeff Bauman, number three, has no legs at all. I mean, this is astute, you know, really stunning. I was aware of the two when Gary came up with the three. Well, now Gary figures here because he teaches music. And when we have discussed this Paul Fall thing, Gary said, you know, it was very striking to him the difference before and after late 1966 because Paul was very good on the guitar but weak on the piano and keyboards, whereas Fall is brilliant on the piano and keyboards and weak on the guitar. I think that's rather stunning. But I also say the imagination and creativity of Fall seems to me to be overwhelmingly greater than Paul. How much of a difference does anyone think between uh, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper? Because that would have been the albums released pre and post. Yeah, the book, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say Sgt. Pepper is the masterpiece, uh, the, uh, the awesome masterpiece of, 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 um, that was uh, central to the sort of psychedelic power of the Summer of Love and Peace. Uh, and uh, they're, all, um, they're all separate people singing, separate stories, separate lives in, in, in those songs. Um, but, uh, I mean, people, some people do, do feel that it follows on from Revolver, 
uh, and, and that uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver were moving in that direction. Yeah. Well, I think Revolver is the best album. That's, you know, music is subjective, but I, they were moving in a spiritual direction. They recorded yeah. Help in a solfeggio frequency of 432 hertz. So I think they were using music and, uh, you know, maybe subconsciously, or they don't, maybe didn't, they didn't really know what they were doing, but I think they were using music to lift people up. Yeah. And I think that it really resonated with people, and they loved them. People just loved them because they were, um, they had that love energy. But this is what Timothy Leary said about Sgt. Pepper. The Sgt. Pepper album compresses the evolutionary development of musicology and much of the history of Eastern and Western sound in a new tympanic complexity. Then add psychedelic drugs. Millions of kids turned on pharmacologically, listening to stoned-out electronic music designed specifically for the suggestive, psychedelicized nervous system by stoned-out, long-haired minstrels. This is the most powerful brainwashing device our planet has ever known. So this is where I think the Tavistock got a hold of the band, turned the music around, used the drugs in connection with the music, to kind of make the people not not be able to uh, resist the Vietnam War very well, kind of make them, uh, well, kind of make them impotent. I mean, LSD, it, it, okay, so you guys might be familiar with Colin Ross, who is a, who's a doctor, who's done research on MKUltra and LSD, he came up. He he came upon a, a document, a CIA document that was declassified, that talked about LSD, LSD's effects. It said some of the more outstanding effects are the mental confusion, helplessness, and extreme anxiety, which are produced by minute doses of this substance. Based mm-hmm. upon these reactions, its potential use in offensive psychological warfare and an interrogation is considerable. It may become one of the most important psychochemical agents. So, yeah, I don't think Sgt. Pepper is, you know, it's. I think it's a, a political agenda in that album, personally. <laughs> I want to come back to this, this uh, psycho aspect that uh, Tina is describing, but let me just say Revolver has some absolutely sensational songs eleanor rigby for example uh is one of my all-time favorites and good day sunshine and a host of others are there as well i mean there's a lot of very very good stuff uh uh, uh, on the revolver album but look look at the history of fall after after you know from from uh, sergeant pepper on uh, creating wings, for example, he wouldn't play Beatle music for at least a year, maybe even longer. Or oh, Norwegian Wood, of course. Norwegian right. Wood is another wonderful piece in Revolver. Surely, right, right through the seventies, he wouldn't perform a Beatle Beatles song. Yeah, um, I think it's because he was free from you know the emancipation yeah. of having to play the role of of, of of Paul McCartney. Now he wanted to do his own thing. But there, there, I think this guy is just an unbelievable creative talent. Now to return to uh, Tina's suggestions, listen, I think the reason why the Beatles had such a grip on America was because it came in the more or less the immediate aftermath of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The, the nation was in a state of profound mourning. Uh, I know uh-huh. the... the, the, the uh, 
redemptive value of music in a context of great grief because it was yeah, after yeah. my mother died uh, when I was 11 uh, and I w went to live with my stepfather, my, my father and stepmother that, that I had a, a little radio in, in, the, in the bunk beds that I designed to convert a screen porch into a room for me and my brother and it was listening to what my stepmother called my, my beer hour Lucky Locker dance time where they had you know shaboom and smoke gets in your eyes and a whole bunch of other wonderful music that emotionally redeemed me I I mean, I felt as though I was being brought back, emotionally brought back from the dead. I think the Beatles had that kind of effect, uplifting, inspiring, joyful, you know, to, yeah. to, to re, you know, get or regain our spirits. And that's why they had such a profound impact. I personally am extremely skeptical about uh, Tina's theory of the design of Tavistock and all this. I frankly do not see it. But I think it's well, fascinating. It's fascinating. For her to uh, articulate, because you you can't know what hypothesis is true until you get it out on the table and are in the position to kick it around. And yeah. the hardest part of research is coming up with alternative hypotheses. It's not actually sorting them out once you get them articulated, but getting them articulated out on the table in the first place. Yeah, but if if we have nine eleven as the day when it happened, uh, just the possibility. That would mean that it was deeply intended and planned. That would that would imply that it wasn't just an accident. I mean, the, the story which uh, initially, which I, I would tend to tell, is the tragic car accident or some cataclysmic accident, and then Brian Epstein has to move very quickly and get yeah. a replacement. Uh, an alternative, if you have the nine eleven date, is is that it's somehow deeply planned and intended. Well, 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 but, but, but Nick, why, why are you attaching that significance to 9-11 in 1966? There are all kinds of reasons why 9-11 took place in New York uh, on that date. Yeah. I mean, we, we could go into that. It was, it was to preempt, for example, the publication of the results by the newspaper consortium that we're about to publish, that in fact Al Gore actually won the, won the election had all the votes been counted. It's also the case that the Securecom contract involving uh, uh, Marvin Bush was going to, for security at, at the World Trade Center, expired uh, that day. I mean, there are a host of reasons why 9-11 occurred uh, in, the, in, in New York uh, yeah. on that date. But I'm, I'm not clear on why you think 9-11 was a significant date in, in, in September of 1966. Well, uh, obviously then they wouldn't have thought it was a significant date. Uh, and we have to make the decision, do, do, we think, do we think so? Let me just put these dates to you. 1962, September 11th, the very first studio recording by the Beatles at Abbey Road, okay? They did the singles, Love Me Do and so on. Then 1966, that may have been the day on which Paul died, okay? Then the next day, next year, 1967, September 11th, they begin the Magical Mystery Tour, uh, th that morning, okay? Then, 68, September 11th, Lennon records his song Glass Onion, which uh, I, I would say is very much uh, about him being haunted by Paul and uh, and kind of trying to reach to him in the great beyond, whatever. But it, it's about him being haunted by, by, by Paul. Around about September 11th, 1969, the Paul is Dead story breaks in America, uh, and the week after that, or days after that, we get the first story of it uh, being reported in a local newspaper, 
uh, student newspaper, uh, and then it, it becomes major the next month, October, uh, as as uh, says, it becomes a very big the next month. Um, if you then move on 2010, you get the huge, massive video, the Winged Beetle. Obviously, we're in the next next century now, uh, when September doesn't have a lot of meaning, but that is when they released the one-hour Winged Beetle, uh, which is all about the idea of, of death and replacement of Paul McCartney. Um, so, I, 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 my, my thing is that, that it somehow is a deeply significant part of the story, but in a way that Obviously, we can't quite understand why that should be. Well, do, are you referring to numerology at all when you talk about the significance of 9-11? Because there are certain numbers. 3-11 is another one that comes up, and then 7-11, right, with the London tube bombing. Uh, right. Right. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not yeah, that much yeah, about numerology, but these, yeah, these numbers are bit, significant. So. Yeah, it's looking a bit numerological. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, who can tell? I always feel the the great example is the film The Matrix, which came out right at the end of the last century, and that is the central character Neo. Right, he's being grilled by um, by Agent Smith, and Agent Smith says, "Are you Neo? Or are you Anderson? Who are you?" And he flips over, he says, we've got all your records here. And he flips over, he's flipping through his records, and you can see his uh, passport, and, and his date of birth is September 11, 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I feel that's kind of significant, linking that last century and, 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 and this one some, somehow. The, 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 the Empire gives you that in this big sci-fi film, The Matrix. Well, it's it's an acknowledged fact that the uh, the elite, the globalists, the New World Order crowd, whatever you want to call them, are definitely obsessed with numerology. Mm-hmm. Seems to be, yeah, yeah. There's another theory, by the way, about what happened to Paul, which is that Brian Epstein got in deep that he was addicted to gambling, and he got in deep with a couple of mobster in uh, loan sharks in in London, and they wanted to use him as access to the pot of gold represented by the Beatles, uh, you know, vast sources of income, but that Brian wouldn't play along with them. So to demonstrate uh, the potential consequences, they took out Paul as the goose that laid the golden egg. Uh, uh, Tina may have something, as she alluded to, a, a bullet hole in the windshield with which I'm unfamiliar. But there's another alternative explanation of what happened to Paul and why he was taken out. I need to correct, by the way, that I suggested Norwegian Wood was in, uh, was in uh, a revolver, actually. It was uh, before, uh, prior to uh, revolver. But rubber saw. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful rubber saw, yes. Yeah, there are different theories about what happened to Paul, and I think that there are, it's just levels and layers of disinformation to throw people off track. So the first thing is that, well, it's the same Paul McCartney, never, nothing ever happened. And then, you know, it goes on from there. So it's the uh, the KKK or the mob, or it's just a simple car accident. And, you know, we can't prove any of these, but I think that, you know, it's, it's preferable. If, if Paul was assassinated, it's preferable to the people behind it for other people to think, oh, it was just a simple car accident. Because they don't dig deeper into possible motivations. So, 
even if I'm completely wrong about why Paul died and who was behind it, at least it gets this information in front of people and they start thinking about it. Think about the possibility of being manipulated that way and, and the psyops that go on. And I, I mean, before Paul, people weren't really talking about imposter replacements very much, but he's not the only person in the history of the world to be imposter replaced and to have that person being controlled. I mean, other people are like Kim Jong-il, who a professor in Tokyo suggested had died and was replaced by several uh, doubles who were the military elite in North Korea were just using to maintain their own control. And then Saddam Hussein, it was also suggested that he had died and then his, his family were using him, using the doubles to maintain their control. So um, it, it's at least an, an interesting and important topic to research. Yeah, but it's a mistake to say we'll never know. I mean, that's been proven to be wrong again and again and again. I mean, take the case of JFK. We know overwhelmingly more, in part because of the more sophisticated techniques that have been applied to the x-rays that, that, that revealed that the official uh, in the National Archives had been altered to conceal a massive blowout at the back of the head that a 6.5 millimeter metallic slice had been added to the anterior posterior in an effort to implicate this <coughs> completely worthless World War II Italian carbine that was actually known as the humanitarian rifle in World <laughs> War II for never actually harming anyone on purpose. We know overwhelmingly more about what happened at JFK today than we did then, and of course research today has uh, been grossly, uh, greatly expedited by the Internet and communications between parties at distant locations uh, at, at, at virtually the speed of light. I mean, it's remarkable how fast uh, research can develop. Look how far along we are even in talking about Paul and Fall today because of the forensic studies. You know, there's no telling but what there may be other sources of information yet to be exploited. I, I'm not at all pessimistic about our, our knowing enough to sort out the alternative theories once you get them out the, the accident theory versus the assassination theory to, to my mind being the two most important and where there seems to be more than one alternative rationale behind an assassination theory uh, I, I continue to believe that Paul died in an automobile accident that he was trapped in the car he wanted to get out, nobody could get him out he burned to death, he lost his hair he hadn't noticed the light had changed because he'd been distracted by Rita, who would later be uh, sung about, too, just using the name as an inspiration. I think there's an awful lot that suggests to me, at least, that he had died during the automobile accident after an argument. It was raining and he was distracted because she was so, so enthusiastic about being in the vehicle with him. But that's not to say that, that, that uh, Tina is, is uh, wrong with her alternative hypothesis. I can only say the weight of the evidence, as I see it, uh, makes the accident hypothesis preferable to the, to the uh, assassination alternative, but where more evidence uh, may lead us to revise our assessment of the situation, where it's typical in scientific context, uh, with the access of new hypotheses and new evidence, 
We may have to reject hypotheses we previously accepted, accept hypotheses we previously rejected, and leave others in suspense. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, um, shall shall we come on to um, just the way the new guy sort of experienced himself in in the band? Um, so, so, sorry, Zelbert, how he fits in the band. There's a lot of quotes from Paul. He says, "I'm very good at forgetting who I am because, as far as I'm concerned, Paul McCartney is a name I was given. I didn't really do all that." It's like a dream, really. It's going to stop soon. And there are a lot of quotes up on Tina's website where he experiences a duality that he has to, at the core of his being, that he has to struggle with, okay? And um, let me quote, um, for example, his song Band on the Run um, and, and in, in, from when he was in Wings, okay, 1973, and um, he feels he's imprisoned, okay? He's stuck inside these four walls and wishes he could get out. And then he recalls the stupendous moment when his life changed forever. And he says, he puts it this way. Well, the rain exploded with a mighty crash as we fell into the sun. And the first one said to the second one there, I hope you're having fun. Now, that's a kind of amazing image of water and fire, the rain's exploding, he falls into the sun, and there's two of them there. And they switch over, and one says to the other, I hope you're having fun. Okay? And um, so that's a band on the wrong image uh, describing how he, ha- or suggesting some sort of trauma, that's an image of some trauma change. And it may be that a lot of his old old life, whoever used to be blotted out from, from him, that's what I sometimes wonder, he has this uncanny ability to remember bits of Paul's life. If people ask him about what it was like being Paul. He's got apparently got a, a very almost complete memory, or a very credible memory. Uh, I sometimes wonder if his whole actual life, whoever he was, has been blotted out from him by, by something that happened. Who knows? Uh, and maybe that metaphor shows it. There's another one, lovely line, in, in the song Blackbird it is, about... Take these broken wings and learn to fly. Okay? Uh, take these sunken eyes and learn to see. And um, I appreciate the, the poetic value of Blackbird is that people can see whatever they want in that song and all sorts of different meanings can be put onto it. Okay? But um, I, I, I would suggest this is like the operating instructions given to the new guy. There's a crashed out band which will be kind of finished if he doesn't take it over. And. Um, he has to take these broken wings and learn to fly, uh, take over from this dead guy, and, and get it going again. He has to he had to has to mend the broken band, and and he does that, and it's a kind of in some ways it's kind of heroic act. But he sacrifices and renounces his old identity, whoever he was, and and um, and, and, and tunes in amazingly well to to this to this new guy. Uh, the hardest thing of all was learning to play the guitar left-handed. Uh, and uh, he somehow manages to tune in to, as it were, the soul of the old Paul, like, um, uh, say, say a great classic like Hey Jude. Uh, it, it's it, it's um, it's almost as if he could somehow tune in to, to the old Paul, whoever he was, uh, and, uh, and and get that sort of tremendous emotional power. Well, uh, 
I just wanted to comment on what you said about the the trauma and also the memories and a, a double a normal double would be trained you know he would learn about his legend which would be in Paul McCartney next. yeah yeah um, but you know it's also possible something like a Manchurian candidate was created where he actually got Paul's memories or that his old, his old past was somehow blocked out. It's possible. I'm not saying it happened, but it is something to keep in mind. Well, the MK Ultra program is is acknowledged. It's it happened, you know. Right. I'm just saying if if fallen if if it is a more elaborate scheme involving Tavistock or, or something like that, then a Manchurian candidate fall would not be outside the realm of possibility. I'd also like to in- inject here that there's a whole darker aspect to the entertainment industry that a lot of people just don't even acknowledge. And it really came to light with the death of Jimmy Savile, where it all came out what was going on in, in the UK, but it's come out a lot in America as well, that there's this massive intertwining of the military-industrial complex with the entertainment industry. And goodness only knows what could have really been going on now. Well, yeah, that's true, Jace. But let's remember, the Beatles songs were actually happy. and made people happy. Uh, and and uh, uh, there was an amazing euphoria uh, 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 in the songs, the wonderful deep harmonies that they could, they could compose. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think that there may be some element of Tavistock programming, but that, that may not sort of fully explain what, what, what happened. No, but I, I think that the, there's a very good stance here that things could have been being manipulated from the inside. Uh, there's also the fact that Brian Epstein was a homosexual, and that wasn't okay to be in the public eye in the 1960s. So, you know, they could have even been pulling cards on him during that time. Uh, maybe you're alluding to the Maxwell Silver Hammer song, one of four songs written in the White Album, and that is, as it were, the MR5 agent. Who uh, uh, and, and the lethal power that, that intelligence will actually bump off people uh, if, if they step out of line. Uh, and uh, breaking the official secrets acts in those days, in the 60s, uh, was a capital offence. Okay, and official secrets act meant that uh, you're not allowed to tell whatever an official secret may be. You know, you're not sure what it is. Uh, so it's quite dreadful. I'd be fascinated to get more substantiation for the thesis of the, you know, the use of the Beatles' music for social engineering. If we go back to to Rubber Soul, for example, I mean, there is a lot of genius shown there, and I don't want to imply, you know, that the uh, their later work before the substitution uh, was uh, insubstantial. I mean, I'm a huge fan. Not only Norwegian Wood, Nor- Nowhere Man, and Michelle. Uh, but 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 girl, I'm looking through you in my life. These, these are wonderful, wonderful songs. I think yeah. I, I may even like Rubber Soul better than Revolver. But listen, I'm very interested to get some content about what's supposed to be the social engineering aspect. I mean, you know, in Revolution, they say, you know, you may you want a revolution. Uh, well, we'd all love to see the plan. I mean. How is that supposed to be manipulative? And what's supposed to be in any way anti-war and so forth? I, I want to hear more it's, about this. It's um, let me just comment real quick. It, it, in my opinion, the Tavistock uh, social engineering did not take effect until after the replacement. So after revolver. No, I know, I know. I only okay. offered those examples before replacement. Now, they don't seem to have any social engineering no. aspect. 
No. So I'm interested in what you think is the social engineering aspect that emerges after the replacement. It would be the drug agenda with the psychedelic music that Timothy Leary was talking about. So you, you yeah, come, I, you, everyone was smoking marijuana. I mean, if you didn't have a few joints in those days, you were you weren't a teenager, or yeah. you weren't a, you know you weren't alive. And the anti-war movement was very big because the draft was still there when Nixon abolished the draft. Uh, it, it was actually catastrophic for the country. It relieved all the anti-war protests, but it left the country in a situation where most families now no longer cared about decisions of war and peace because uh, their children, their sons and daughters weren't going to be at risk. And, and the executive took much more control over our involvements abroad. It was all very catastrophic. Nixon, of course, also took us off the gold standard, which I think has proven to be a, a terrible blunder in addition vis-a-vis uh, uh -huh. -vis the Fed and the publishing of, of money by a press with nothing to back it and so forth. But I, I'm interested more, Tina, that things that wouldn't just be general and prevalent in culture at the time, because, you know, Woodstock and all that, I mean, that was well, yeah. fantastic stuff. Well, but I don't see social engineering there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the drugs of LSD in particular, coupled with the music... The psychedelicized music that they used to, I think they basically rendered the anti-war movement, the protesters, impotent. So they derailed it from being a very serious movement that was dangerous to them and took it off to being where it wasn't that dangerous to them. Or they tried anyway because... The, the uh -huh. drugs are making the people um, not as effective. Well, Nixon, whatever the social engineering side was, from a slightly take a different angle, uh, Dr. Richard Asher would have, I think, know, known about it. He was a uh, hypnotist psychiatrist, not far from the Tatato Institute, and obviously he was the father of Jane Asher, uh, and, uh, and Paul was living in his house. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so I think if, if if you think any kind of programming was going on, uh, he would surely have been a person at the centre of it. Uh, and um, so he meets this tragic fate uh, a month after his lovely daughter Jane gets jilted because uh, uh, Fall uh, goes with this American American girl in, instead, uh, Lynn Reisman, uh, a mere month after his beautiful uh, top actress... Uh, uh, daughter uh, Jane is, is jilted he is then found dead in his basement of his house and he's obviously been bumped off by the establishment for the strange circumstances of, of, of his death um, so that, that is a sort of very dark part of the story now, to add to the social engineering aspect of it, uh, the research of David McGowan and Mark Devlin has definitely demonstrated the massive interconnectedness of the entertainment industry and the military-industrial complex. Now, I'm a huge fan of Dave McGowan. Why don't you elaborate uh, on that uh, theme, Jason? Sure. Uh, Dave McGowan, who sadly passed away at the end of last year, he did intense research into predominantly American rock stars of the 1960s in the Laurel Canyon scene. But right, right. The majority of some of the biggest names in American music in the 60s had direct connection to either the military or military companies with their parents. Right. 
the biggest example is, that's always used is Jim Morrison's father being Admiral Morrison. Right. Yeah. There's just no denying that this bizarre thing was going on where all these people were coming to this one area. But Jason, how did it manifest in in music that was intended to affect social engineering as Tina has proposed? If I had to take a stab at this, I'd say it's it's because the war, the anti-war movement was building and building and building, and they were trying to find ways of disarming that. But look, it was already, yeah, 1968, Nixon was promising to end the draft in, during his campaign. Now, it would take a while for it actually to come to pass. He thought it would be an effective political weapon against the anti-war movement. I do think it had a lot to do with deflating it. I mean, once there's no longer any draft, I mean, there's a, there might be excellent reasons for opposing wars. For example, after 9-11, I mean, our intervention in the Middle East was all really a, a grotesque a blunder, but it was all deliberate. I mean, the whole point of 9-11 was to transform our foreign policy from one in which, at least officially, we didn't attack any nation that had not attacked us first to one in which we gave, became an aggressor nation, following out a plan that later uh, Wesley Clark would reveal at the Commonwealth Club in 2007 of taking out the governments of seven countries in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya, ending with Syria and Iran. Fortunately, Russian intervention has put a halt to that. But this is just indicative of a way in which, you know, the government to go ahead and act, the wars and the American people are docile and don't get involved in protesting. I mean, yeah. it's very embarrassing. If, if the draft had still been in place and the American public believed that their sons and daughters would put in, put in harm's way, they might have been far more critical about the story we were sold about 9-11, about the claims of weapons of mass destruction possessed by Saddam Hussein, and a host of other issues that have been, where false information has been used to manipulate the public in ways that are clearly uh, grossly abusive of any responsibility of the government to disseminate the truth in the order to protect the American people. That was absolutely, totally lost, maybe initially during JFK, which was elaborately covered up, uh, where the government was complicit in the assassination. But most assuredly, in the wake of 9-11 and all the phony stories that get us embroiled in wars in the Middle East, I mean, I... I'm just very troubled with, you know, the fact that the decision to end the draft has actually had enormous consequences for the social political fabric of the country. No, I could definitely see why why that would make a huge difference. They probably attacked the problem from numerous angles, I would think. Uh, the way things were going on in the 60s and from the research I've done, I think things may have actually been worse on the civil level than was being let on. There was probably more going on. I've asked a lot of people who were... Uh, in their 20s and 30s in the 60s, and they said there was a lot of things going on on the grassroots level that really didn't get talked about, and a lot of it was going on in colleges. So, like, one person would start saying something, and then it would just kind of quickly, like a brush fire, spark into this great big thing, and I think the establishment would have been trying to attack this problem any way they can, and using the uh, the pop music of the day was probably just one huge aspect of how to control things. Well, how did the pop music work to that effect? This is the, the what I'm having a hard time seeing, how the Beatles' music was supposed to be an instrument of social engineering. I need to see that more clearly. Okay, so um, basically I've done some research on how frequency is used uh, on people, and uh, this is something that Dr. Leonard Horowitz has talked about, and he was saying that the, the music was changed 
1953, the, the international standard was set to A equals 440 hertz. So um, this is not a particularly healthy frequency for people to be exposed to. It, um, it doesn't really uh, vibrate very well with people's chakra centers, you know, if you believe that. But there are solfeggio frequencies, and one of them is the 432 hertz, which the Beatles recorded, uh, for, used for help, the whole album. Is that documented fact? Because I use 432 in my music, and the album I released last year, I did all in 432. Oh, good. Yeah, and actually Cliff Richard had mentioned that the Beatles were, quote, out of tune, but it was just because they were tuned down a little bit from that, the 440, which probably didn't really resonate right with them. Well, it's not quite a, a whole semitone down. It's it's kind of in between, and because I've done a lot of tests with it when I was first learning about all this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, a, I'm a studio engineer, so yeah. I found the whole concept incredibly interesting, and I kind of delved into it. Uh, I hadn't actually looked to see if there's any documented evidence of the Beatles using that tuning consistently anywhere. I, I don't know that they used on anything but help. I mean, they may have. I'm just not aware of it. But so this uh, this music, if if they're so, Dr. Leonard Horowitz actually claims that they're militarizing music. When they when they tuned tuned it to to A equals four forty hertz, and you know musicologists have complained that it um it you know it doesn't harmonize with people's natural vibration, and so it, it causes conflict. It causes aggression. Um, so, so I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to look into how the music is used, and that and that's what I was thinking of in why Timothy Leary was saying that they were combining the music with the drugs for this for this uh, agenda. That could definitely be a part of it. I think what Jim's trying to get at is what was the entertainment industry being used? How was it being used to manipulate society? Oh, okay. So when you go to... Sorry, I wasn't really clear on what exactly we were trying to get to. Um, well, I mean, we know about the, the New World Order agenda, of course. And um, so this is Wes Penrith. Uh, he is a researcher, and he talks about the Illuminati. And he's saying that the trends are set by the Illuminati-owned music industry, where they know exactly how frequencies work. They have the best scientists working for them. The music they produce vibrates on the frequency they want us to vibrate on for the moment to enhance the New World Order agenda. And that's it. They want to keep us on certain frequency where they can control us as a whole. This was a period, the, the late 60s, of terrific hope and optimism. And everyone looks back to that and said, well, you know, wow, how did it happen? Uh, people felt maybe some revolution was happening, and they were looking forward to things. Uh, and uh, 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 America was the place, uh, sort of, was the place that the world looked to. And, uh, well, London was kind of the swinging centre of the uh, pop music scene. Uh, and... and um, this then ended as the Beatles broke up, and then uh, th that synchronised with the kind of break-up of, of the sense of hippie movement and, and of some sort of optimistic period. Well, it's definitely noticeable that the 1960s was this giant, colourful, happy, positive... Uh, just all the imagery was... was colorful is the one thing that always sticks to my mind. You watch the original Star Trek and it's just colorful as, as all get out. And then you 
right into the beginning of the 70s, everything all of a sudden turns drab and dark and gray and very stark differences between the 60s and 70s. So something as far as social engineering definitely went in a, a one direction to the next. Do we want to talk about uh, any uh, um, sort of later stages in, in Fall's life? Or, or for example, the, the, the women, Jane, Jane and, and Linda, I think that's a, a, a very deep aspect to this well, difference in personalities. There's a wonderful story. You may have told it to me, Nick, about how Linda, of course, was very familiar with the group. She was a photographer. She knew them very, very well. There's some suggestions, even intimately, in that when she walked up to Fall, she said, uh, I know you're not Paul. When did you join the band? And <laughs> that this was rather disarming, and he was very open with her. Of course, they would eventually marry. And where, again, I believe you have been the one to observe that Jane Asher appears to have been the actual love of Paul's life. They, of course, were engaged. But that for Fall, it was all Linda Eastman. And, of course, they would go on and do wings together and so forth. Some of the yeah. stuff is absolutely just terrific stuff. Yeah, I think it really shows the difference in personality. You see, Linda was a, a, a groupie. And she, she got film of you know Janis Joplin and Jimi, Jimi Hendrix and stuff. And that was the world that Fall loved to live in. Uh, and and uh, they would enjoy having a joint together. Whereas Jane wasn't into that at, at all. She, she wasn't a dump smoker. She was into, you know, Shakespearean acting, which is a very different world. And Paul, uh, like being with Jane, he sort of got culture from her. She introduced him to everything that you'd call culture. Uh, and and um, uh, I think so. It was, it was a very different... Even though she was away a lot of the time rehearsing with her films and everything, uh, they, they were like the... Um, kind of rock royalty in London, Jane, Jane and Paul, uh, and, and uh, they really got on together, uh, and he, he composed some songs to her. Nick, what's the uh, stated reasons that they separated? Well, uh, hang on, that would be after Paul died. See, the thing was, after Paul died, Richard Asher, her father, would have explained to her, look, you, you've just got to go on with the show, I'm afraid you're not allowed to grieve, uh, you've got to look as if you're okay and be seen with the new guy. Uh, and she did agree to do that. And that is what gave terrific credibility to Paul as he came on the scene. That this lovely redhead um, would be with him and he could kind of not, not only take over Paul's uh, house and clothes, but his girl as well. Uh, and um, so that was a terrific blast uh, and, and helped to give credibility and integrity to his new life. Um, then after he'd met Linda, and he then later told his daughter that he really tuned in to her and fancied her, then he um, gives an engagement ring to Jane, which is extremely bizarre. And I would say it's the worst thing Jane ever did in her life. Uh, there were two actors, and she just took the acting too far and let herself accept an engagement. And, of course, that all crashed as he finally tuned in to, to Linda. Uh, and, and tuning with Linda... Um, there's also no, there's marriage to Linda uh, there was only Big Mel invited to the Beatles none of the other Beatles were invited and the fathers of the, the parents of Paul were not invited not only not invited but they weren't even told about it Okay, so that was a wedding uh, being with Linda well, he wanted to affirm his new identity he wasn't just an image or replica of Paul uh, he was 
is tired of enormous stress of putting this mask on and pretending to be Paul McCartney all the time. And Linda really helped him to find a new identity uh, in Wings and move out of Scotland and get away from the Beatles. Uh, and so I think it's quite important that that marriage, um, that, the, uh, that the parents of Paul didn't, weren't even told about it. Uh, and none of the Beatles were invited. And Matt Evans, we remember, was with Paul, the very first time he appears on the scene, he's out in Africa on his visit to Kenya, uh, and Mal Evans is with him. And then when they get home, we get back to London, uh, Mal Evans moves in with him at Cavendish Avenue for, for a month or two, uh, and he's with him, kind of helping him to run the home. Um, uh, and so, which is quite a sacrifice from Mal Evans' point of view. Uh, so so he, he gets invited to, to that wedding. Uh, so I think that shows. Uh, the, the very different characters of, of these two different uh, Beatle guys uh, in terms of the, the two different women. And, of course, they were together all the way up until uh, Linda's passing. Linda never really says anything, does she? She never says a damn thing. In fact, all the women are very silent in this story. Jane will never, ever talk about Paul, right? After her father uh, is, is killed and found dead in his own basement, that is a message to her. You don't ever, ever talk about what you know, right? Heather uh, knows. Heather knows uh, all this, dude. <laughs> I'd actually like to hear more about her because I've seen clips of her where she seems pretty adamant that she's got some very heavy details. Yeah, absolutely. She's oh. got bo- a box of all this information that would blow away the world and that, you know, it's just too much for the world to understand, but that she can prove it. If anything happens to her, it's going to be revealed. And she has to be talking about the replacement of Paul by Paul. Mm-hmm. And she got death threats, too. So, Did she know who she was getting involved with when, you know, at the beginning of their relationship? No, I think she I- thought she was marrying Paul McCartney. James Paul McCartney was astonished she actually was marrying Billy Shears. And is there anything that's ever come out about what she may have found out? Has she ever actually said anything? She's made lots of implications. Yes, she has. She's made a lot of implications. That's what I'm curious about. I think she's legally constrained. I think there was something about their divorce agreement that she had to conform, and she'd otherwise lose millions, you know, maybe. I think this was all very tightly constructed. Now, what about the person he's married to now? Another Jewish lady. She's also Jewish, um, like Linda was Jewish. But, um, I, I, I don't think I know anything about her, to tell the truth. I don't either. That's actually why I brought it up. Yeah. I don't know too much about her either. Just another, who knows, maybe a handler. Who knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I was wondering, is there anything that he even looks fishy with the person he's with now? Because There's a lot of women in this story that you wish they'd tell their story, and, and they don't. You just never hear from them. They go silent. Well, that's kind of what I'm getting on at here, is there's a lot of people around this story. We're, we're focusing just on Paul, but, I mean, going back in time, what was Brian Epstein up to, you know, that we don't know about? What was Mal Evans up to that we didn't know about? What, what about Linda Eastman? Who was she? You know, who were all these people? Well, Mal Evans met an untimely death right before he was going to publish his tell-all book on the Beatles. Yeah, right, about a week before he was going to publish it. <laughs> And And it disappears, right? His manuscript completely disappears. His manuscript, his suitcase full of Beatles memorabilia, and his body all went missing. Okay, that's about the fishiest thing you could possibly say. I mean, it doesn't prove anything, but my goodness, that's just ridiculous, you know? And then his ashes get lost, you know? 
Mm. Well, Jason, you don't want to be too strict in your use of the word proof. It's evidence. I mean, it's an evidential indicator. Something was terribly, terribly wrong. It's like when uh, they fired Paul's butler, you know. I mean, here was a man who had served Paul absolutely faithfully, completely devoted to him, and, 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 and Mel and Brian come to him and say he, that Paul is firing him. This is because he obviously would have known that this was not Paul. And, yeah. and, you know, do we know whatever became of him? Did he, did, did he I, I'm suspicious he didn't live a long life after that. But <laughs> No, I don't. But uh, this is the one page of, uh, of Big Mal, Mal Evans' uh, manuscript that has a legend, seems to have surfaced. Uh, and we're going to thank Claire Coon and the various different bits of the Wing Beetle and uh, Rotten Apple show bits of this page, okay? And she's carefully put them together to get a reasonably coherent script. And, and it's a brilliant page of, of Mal Evans. It starts off with Mal Evans being told by Epstein he's got to tell the butler to bugger off. Uh, and he's, he's very upset by this. He has to go into Cavendish Avenue, tell the new butler to go right away, pack his stuff up, go away. Can't really tell him why. And he goes right before full... Uh, fall comes back, so he doesn't see the new fall, uh, the, 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 the butler, okay? And then they have a meet-up with all the old Beatles and one or two uh, sort of girlfriends, uh, and there's an amazing meet-up when they see the new fall. Uh, and uh, John Lennon is absolutely amazed and gobsmacked, because uh, uh, Lennon had, had agreed to let this new guy come in, but believed that he could never appear in public. He said we could be able to do a few more Paul songs with this new guy, but but he'll never be credible to the public. And he started to think when he saw him that November day, I think it was 20th November, that okay, may just maybe he might be uh, credible for a public performance. And uh, and Lennon shows him his composition, Strawberry Fields Forever, and uh, I think they play it. They play it, and and he shows them how. Playing it backwards gives some meaning, and Mal Evans is deeply impressed by this, this backward masking technique. Uh, and uh, at the end, they all get stoned, smoke a joint and get stoned together. Uh, and, and so it gives you the impression, uh, this is the one bit of text we have about the kind of mood they're in when they're composing this Sergeant Pepper. It's an amazing bit of background to the uh, idea of comp- composing the Sergeant Pepper uh, and, and the idea of it, which was, of course, falls. Paul allegedly had the idea when he was coming back from Africa uh, of the Sergeant Pepper concept, uh, and, and so so we get that bit uh, from the uh, uh, from the Malevans manuscripts. Okay. Hello. Oh yeah. Hey Ben, look, I'm still on this. It's a two-hour thing with uh, with Jim Petzer and stuff. Um, <laughs> the show's right. <laughs> it's only a few, nearly finished. Yeah. Okay, good to hear you anyway. Yeah. Jason, let me just throw in a few observations as we're tending toward the end, which include the following. Uh, uh, The Rolling Stones, for example, of the 100 Greatest Beatles songs. I think it's interesting to go through, scroll through them, and determine how many happened before and after the replacement of of Paul by Fall. I mean, for example, the greatest song uh, by many measures is uh, Day in the Life. And, and, of course, uh, that was uh, recorded in 1967, and we're talking about a fall contribution here. Uh, yeah. but, but I also think it's very, very interesting that fall, 
or would deserve to get recognition for his own contributions. There's a there's a, a quote attributed to his father, which may or may not be apocryphal, saying he he hopes that 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 his son uh, receives the uh, recognition that he deserves. Well, I think this guy is so creative. Had to be, you know gave up his own life, had to bear the burden of being impersonating another person permanently. I mean, he couldn't vary from it. Uh, the Billy Shears uh, memoirs uh, to which Nick has alluded uh, seem to me utterly rich and fascinating about what's going on here, playing this double life. I just think this is yeah. a fascinating aspect of it, and that at some point I think it, w- it would be a tremendous relief to fall to have the whole story told in a, in a, in a way that the public would understand yeah, I think he would love to hear the story come out uh, before he dies. But on the other hand, he's under legal constraints that he might sort of lose his fortune and everything if it did come out. Well, if his name's all over those songs, he's getting publishing rights from it. I mean, Lennon McCartney, all those songs, if, if that's who he is legally, as far as his corporate identity is concerned, he's Paul McCartney, I'd say he has a lot to lose. Now, as far as, uh, you know... Having relief, I'm sure it would be very interesting. But let's not forget the fact that this person is 74, I think, somewhere around there. If indeed this is a different person than who was in the Beatles in the early era, he's been this person since the 1960s. Like, that's that's who he has been all all these decades. Well, that's what he claimed. He says, I've been Paul, Paul McCartney far longer than the other guy. Right. He says, I could probably pass, uh, pass a lie detector any lie detector test claiming to be Paul McCartney. He feels he more really is Paul McCartney than, than, than the other guy, you know. And just carting back to what Tina said about numerology, that book, Memoirs of Billy Shears, came out on 9909, right? That's mm-hmm. when it was published. And uh, it's got 666 pages in 66 chapters. Mm. Um, so, so there's a quite heavy numerology pattern Put, put into it. And that's also when they released the uh, the remastered Beatles collection as well. Exactly, yeah. So on different sides of the Atlantic, you've got the remastered Beatles collection issued in, in, in London, and then this this book, Memoirs of Bush, is coming out in America uh, sy- synchronously with that. You know, that's quite a heavy concept. Mm-hmm. Now, since we are getting towards the end here, what I would really like to tackle at the end is the uh, the, the, the forensic evidence that was done by the Italian team, because obviously that's a very recent thing. I mean, the a lot of this was very circumstantial for years and years and years, and you have these people who are professionals saying, we're going to put an end to this, and then they end up saying, wait, we were wrong. We were trying to say, this guy is Paul McCartney, and we don't think he is. So- yeah, well, the wider Italian, you can't really get that anymore. That's why Jim did a great service in putting an English translation of their stuff in, in his book. Um, let's just point out that the, 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 the date when it happened... Is, is, is quite important um, uh, uh, and uh, it was in it was in 2009 15th of July they, that they did it and that same that same evening Paul did a New York rooftop concert okay then two days later on the 17th he appears on the David Letterman show uh, which is uh, brilliant everybody should watch it uh, and uh, there's this thing of being a, a, a double is he a double it's very humorous. You notice, Nick, Letterman asked him, who is, the, who is the fake? And he says, I am. He says, this is yeah. it. He points to himself. 
he says, well, this is it, points to himself. <laughs> and they're both stunned into silence by what he's just said, you know. That's supposed to be a brilliant witticism, but he's actually speaking the truth. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, Letterman ends it up very well, saying, or is it? Uh, so that's that's a brilliant moment, I think. But let's notice how the Empire takes the... Um, takes the attention away from that Italian wide article coming out. It must have known in advance it was going to come out. And Fall does the spontaneous rooftop concert, which is, you know, pretty damn good. Uh, and uh, you had a whole lot of New Yorkers uh, around listening to it. Uh, and that is, that knocks, up, knocks it off the headlines, the, the, the wired concert. What? Sorry, the, the wired report is knocked off the headlines by that concert. I'd just like to add that for those who would like to look at the forensic evidence uh, might not uh, have access to the book, uh, they can go online on my blog, just do a search on why Ringo's confession, We Replace Paul, appears to be authentic, because I put that on my blog, jamesfetzer.blogspot.com, and it, it embeds the, the forensic evidence, also photographs of the difference in their height and explains the situation in general, as well as uh, reprinting uh, re, uh, re, uh, the Ringo's confession from the Hollywood Inquirer. Yeah, I have the Hollywood images. Inquirer doesn't really exist, does it? Surely it's just a spoof magazine that publishes spoof news. Well, I think it's used as a conduit to get out information without having to attribute it in a more specific way, so you can use plausible deniability and say, well, that's just a spoof, but where I think it uh, turns out to be an important vehicle for getting out truth, just as I believe this confession they published from Ringo is indeed authentic. Tina? Oh, I, I think they publish all sorts of disinformation out there to just make it very difficult to discern what the truth is. I do think the truth is out there. I mean, they tell you Paul is replaced. They tell you Paul is dead, even. And they tell you in lots of different ways. They don't say, obviously, outright. But if you can read between the lines, that information is out there. But I do think that uh, all of these, like the last testament of George Harrison, I mean, all that stuff is, is just ways to get disinformation out there. Yes, the core is true. Paul is dead. He was replaced. But then the circumstances that they tell you surrounding it, you know, I, I, don't, I take it with a grain of salt. So, Which part do you take with a grain of salt? Oh, the, just the, what they say, like, oh, if there's a car accident, well, maybe. Or read this Rita story, I, you know, I, I don't really believe that. I uh -huh. just think there's lots of stuff out there that is... I mean, based on, for example, Fred Labore, when he wrote his article, that had a lot of impact. But he was just guessing off of the clues that were in the songs mm -hmm. and on the album. So it's sort of like that became the blueprint for Paul is Dead, like what happened to Paul. But that was just his research into the clues because he didn't know either. Mm -hmm. So... And for years, this uh, whole whole thing would have only been hearsay from one person to the next because obviously they weren't going on the internet back then. They were they, people were just discussing it, and it started on a radio program, didn't it? Well, it was published. Okay, well, the first reference to PID showed up in the Beatles Monthly in January of 1967, and they they published something like, "Oh, there's this rumor that Paul died on the M1," but of course, it's not true. Just a denial, yeah, official denial. Yeah, and then and then back and then later in '69, um, 
you know, in September, somebody published on the West Coast in a college paper that Paul had died. And then Tom Zarsky called in a Russ Gibbs show in October, say, oh, did you hear that Paul was dead? And then they talked about it with Jesus. And then um, Fred Labor heard that, and then he published his paper. And so there, it's sort of like, you know, these early stories um, where nobody really knew what was going on, but they, they had a lot of influence later on. Now, obviously, the person who is Sir Paul McCartney right now is way more towards the end of his life than not. Is there any way that uh, if he does pass at some point in the next however many years, this could be proven? Uh, well, yeah, the whole question of the DNA sampling will right. come. And sure. the, the, we'll be looking, the first thing we'll look at, does his will allow DNA sampling? If He might say, oh, just cremate the body and nobody's allowed to do it. But if it does allow DNA sampling, then the whole kind of world kind of come open, uh, and people who can get DNA well f- from uh, you know from relatives of Paul, like Mike McGear, who are still alive, uh, and there's the German lady with with a daughter uh, who who's got a daughter from the old Paul, and she has got uh, presumably in Germany people still got the DNA of a Paul who allowed his blood to be sampled, so. Uh, allowing blood, allowing DNA sampling of four when he passes away, will really open up the whole thing in a big way. Um, and I think that there's TV programmes already prepared. I mentioned earlier the story of the guy who bought uh, Paul's Aston Martin, right? In, in in Italy, he had the programme. Was it Discovery programme? People came up to him from the BBC and interviewed him, uh, and they said that it was for a a prospective Paul is Dead program that, that would come out when Paul passes, so Paul passes away. Okay, so I, I think that some, um, you know, program stuff already waiting in the wings for mm-hmm. when uh, when Sir Paul passes away. I think a problem with the DNA testing is there's no chain of evidence from Paul McCartney. There's no what. There's no chain of evidence. There's there's nothing that proves it's from Paul. I mean, people could have a, a lot of hair. You can use relatives of Paul. You've got relatives of Paul's family still alive. And Mike McGear, so he. I mean, I'm, I'm not confident that he's going to allow any comparison between himself and Paul. And yeah. Yeah, even... Yeah. Even if they do have DNA testing, it would have to be somebody completely independent so that the results weren't uh, manipulated. Tina, uh, you're missing you're missing Nick's point, which is that their genetic uh, constituents and the DNA molecules for family resemblances, no. and there are relatives who are alive that could be compared to the then now recently deceased. Uh, individual going by the name of Paul McCartney to determine whether or not he's a familial relative or not. I mean, this I'm, is, I'm it's, it's one more case where it seems to me you make the mistake of saying we'll never know, when in fact there are well, good reasons why we might very well know. I'm familiar with DNA testing. I'm just not optimistic that Mike McGear is going to allow it because he has been, uh, you know, it's a way of knowing. I understand, but, but I'm not it's, confident that it's going to... Which, of course, might become an object of arbitration. It might involve a lawsuit. I think Heather Mel, so once he's dead, too, may feel 
may not be obligated in the same way she is now, but we don't know the particulars of her legal arrangements here. It's clear they were very skillfully contrived to inhibit her from releasing this information. But it's rather preposterous to assume she'd make such a point of it uh, that, and that she'd not actually have the proof, which once again would resolve the issue. Continue to be so skeptical about our never knowing. We are going to yeah. know. I'm, well, hang on. So, Tina's got legal experience in this. Uh, let, let's let's uh, ask her again. Uh, are there no other relatives? For example, there's Aunt Jin of, of Paul. Uh, there were aunts he had. Uh, have not they got any descendants? Uh, surely there must be other relatives of, of Paul's. Um, father and mother are are, are, are there not? Well I'm not saying that there aren't relatives and in theory yes you could take Mike McGear and compare it to Fall but my concern is that all of these people are in on it what is what kind of threats have they gotten or what kind of payoff have they gotten to keep silent? That's a very legitimate point If, if this thing has been set up all these years they've already thought of all these things yeah, so you would have to compel somebody to donate DNA evidence, but what sort of legal theory are you going to use? Like, who would have standing to force them to give well, blood the daughter, or hair? Well, the daughter of Bettina Huber Huber in well, Germany. She, well, she but, got, yeah, took a lawsuit. Bettina Krishvin, yes, she tried to, she had a paternity ca- case against Fall. Yeah. And she was trying to prove that she was Paul's daughter. That yeah. Saul and she are not going to have any blood relationship because Saul was not her father, but there's no Paul. So we're, she'd have to compare to Mike McGear then. And that's she could potentially have legal standing for that. If she were to, to try to pursue that. But, you know, her... She tried to go to the German courts and reopen her paternity case based on fraud. That yeah. the person who went to the blood test or, or gave blood back in 1982 was not the real Paul McCartney. Well, the German courts are not going to allow that. Right. It's like, well, that's a legitimate case of fraud. But this is such a high-level operation, in my opinion, that they're yeah. not going to ever... Uh, and, and what do you think of the whole Japanese story about fingerprints? You know when mm-hmm. Fall or Sapporo was put in jail in Japan, yeah. uh, and they said, your fingerprints don't match the fingerprints we got a Paul, and we got Paul from when he was in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, who the hell are you? Uh, you're an imposter, aren't you? Um, do you think that fingerprint story might still uh, work out at all, or will that, will that all have been thrown away years ago? Yeah, you know, that they, um, so they had fingerprints of, well, of John Lennon, okay, this is a whole other subject, but the FBI confiscated this man, he was trying to sell these fingerprints because he was a, a collector or memorabilia or, or memorabilia or whatever, and the yeah. FBI confiscated these fingerprints of John Lennon. So, in my opinion, what happened in Japan when 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 Fall was arrested for supposedly having you know cannabis, the the Japanese were comparing the fingerprints from when Paul was there. They're like, this yeah. isn't the same guy. So they hold Fall for like 10 days trying to sort yeah. out what is going on. And I think they probably talked to somebody very high level. Yeah, said, just let him go. He's, you know, <laughs> and they couldn't hold him because it, it's such a high level operation. It, yeah. I'm guessing.
Tina, were you referring to the John Lennon, Mark Stacer, Miles Mathis work? Potentially. Uh, this was a few years ago. Um, it's on my blog. I'm sorry, I'm not up to date on the John Lennon stuff, but... No, that's okay. It's just a, there seems to be a lot of convoluted things that have gone on all around these people, and it's just interesting that not only does Paul McCartney have some sort of shadowy history to him, John Lennon probably does as well. Right. So I, I'm just saying, like, the fingerprints. I just don't think that the powers that be are going to let... If they can help it, they're not going to let fingerprints or DNA stuff get out there. But they can't help letting pictures get out there because there's this whole catalog of pictures. And, and the best they can do is tamper with them or recycle images. But yeah. the stuff that's out there, Paul, it's already out there. They're trying to you know, flood it with a lot of images uh, that have been tampered or fall, but it's too late. Cats out of the bag on that one. Now, photos aside, is there any definitive evidence that the recordings, the re-releases, were sped up or in some way altered to make the current Paul sound more like the original Paul? Or vice versa? She's Leaving Home was apparently slowed down, and um, the original mono versions were dis- were deleted or thrown out. So that's that's a little suspicious. And But, you know, you're the studio engineer, so you probably know about how the sound technology would be able to hide it. I mean, now they have oh, voice working technology. They have voice doubles. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you can create, you know, create the illusion that it's the same Paul. Well, a very good example I could throw out there for a lot of people is the song Angie by the Rolling Stones. The way it was written, Mick Jagger couldn't hit the notes. It was too high, so they slowed it down so that it was in his range, they sang the song, sped it back up to where Keith Richards wanted it. And that is the song you've heard a billion times since the 60s. Or 70s, I'm not actually sure when that one came out. But anyway, it would have been on tape, you know? Mm-hmm. So yes, the, the even way back then, very easy thing to do. I mean, speeding up and slowing down tape is actually a staple for a lot of the effects we now use to this day, even digitally. So in this day and age of auto-tune and melodyne, you could easily change pitches and tunes, and no problem whatsoever. I fix people's vocals all the time. Uh-huh. So anyway, that being said, we're pretty much at the end here. I was just wondering what everyone's final thoughts would be on exposure. What, what do you think the consequences would be if this came out definitively, smoking gun, can't deny it anymore? Tina, what do you think? Well, I think there's still a lot of people living with blinders. They don't want to see stuff. I would hope it would be a wake-up call to them, and it would be motivation for them to just really examine some of the the, the media lies, the propaganda, the psyops, and just feel like not fall for every... <laughs> everything that they're told on the media and just be a little bit skeptical and do their own research. You know, so they're not led down the garden path because, you know, there there is supposedly the New World Order agenda in place and, and people are, are led by the hand down this path. So I would hope that they would say, no, I'm not going to keep going in that direction. Thank you, Tina. Uh, Nick, what do you think? Well, I'm not sure there is a, a smoking gun. Uh, it says, can you prove it? Uh, I, I would say, well, you, you've got to listen to the music and experience the story. Uh, it's, it brings us to the central question of real identity. Who, who really is this person? And we find that, that question paradox so often 
in, in the modern world, especially with the example of fabricated terror events, where the Empire stamps an identity, a false identity, onto somebody, and that is then given out to the news. Uh, so I think this may be very common, and also, as uh, Mark Devlin kind of indicates in his book, Musical Truth, uh, people getting to the top of the food chain, uh, the threat of being replaced or, or getting some, some other, something done to your soul or personality may be very common these days, much more so than, than, than we realise. Um, maybe a kind of risk of getting too high up in the modern world, of being successful. Um, I, I suspect that something happens quite a lot in the modern world. Um, but uh, I, I would agree with the general content in my discussion that the replacement that happened now was, uh, in this case, was benevolent. It, it led to a brilliant amount of music appearing uh, and, and uh, a wonderful time in, in modern history for some years um, and uh, however it was achieved it was, it was generally a story that is, is happy and makes people feel good yeah what do you think the consequences would be in society if it came out that this person wasn't the original Paul McCartney well I think it would be a very important wake up realisation uh, and uh, sort of shattering making people realise things aren't what they appear to be and and we do get manipulated stories. So, so I think that would be, uh, and also, uh, I mean, obviously, consequence, it leads to a, a terrific new interest in listening to the Beatles records. But I don't think that's quite what, what you meant. I, I, I think the, the, the question of, of, of real identity that people would be forced to confront would be uh, very valuable. Thank you, Nick. Jim, what are your final thoughts on this? Well, the case for two different persons has been established on the, by the forensic evidence. There really is no doubt about it. The reason I felt this case was so important and included it in the book, and, no, and I suppose we didn't go to the moon either, is because, and I supplement the study of, uh, of Paul, the four chapters, with two on the first death of Saddam Hussein and two on the second death of Osama bin Laden, if you can replace the most closely scrutinized figure in the world and by and large get away with it, you can replace anyone. That's exactly what happened in the case of Saddam Hussein, who actually was taken out on 7 April 2001, just three weeks into the invasion. I, I was contacted by the mother of the bomber pilot who took him out who wanted to know the truth, and uh, I was fascinated as she supplied me with one proof after another. Uh, likewise, the raid on the compound in Pakistan was political theater. Osama bin Laden had actually died in Afghanistan on 15 December 2001, where he was buried in an unmarked grave in accordance with Muslim tradition. Nick has published an article about it entitled Osama bin Laden, uh, 1957 to 2001. David Ray Griffin, the, the dean of 9-11 studies, published a whole book about it entitled Osama bin Laden, Dead or Alive. Even Fox News was on top of this story because on 26 December 2001, now this is uh, just um, you know less than two weeks after they reported that Osama bin Laden appeared to be dead, and you can even find that right now online still. So I encourage those who want to pursue these issues further and perhaps appreciate their broader significance, if they want to track down the book, it's available both at Amazon.com and at MoonRockBooks.com, where my books on uh, Sandy Hook and the Boston bombing are also available. 
Jim, since we're finishing up here, why don't you go ahead and uh, give out where everyone can find you and your work. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks very much, Jason. I think that's a terrific. Uh, Nick, Nick and Tina are two of the the world's leading experts on on uh, Paul McCartney and his death, and it's just wonderful to be here with them. Uh, the re- the real deal is uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday from eight to ten p.m. Uh, Eastern time. That's a video show. Uh, just do a search on uh, the real the real deal. Uh, MBC Media Broadcasting Center, Tuesday, Thursdays, I do the raw deal on rentsradio.com. Uh, that's from uh, 8 to 9 p.m. on uh, Eastern Time. And, and my blog, uh, not to go through the litany, the, the, the best where my most current articles uh, are published, including three now on the Orlando shooting, uh, not all authored by myself, but the best work I find uh, put together there to inform people about these elaborate staged events is jamesfetzer.blogspot.com. And I want to thank you, Jason, for having the, the, the foresight to put this show together. Oh, thank you. I, I definitely appreciate having everybody here. And also, Jason, in three days' time, it's Paul's birthday, the 18th of June. Let's encourage your listeners, just have a beer or a glass of wine with your friends, put on a Beatle record, and just <laughs> mull over honouring what this guy did, the awesome achievement in just four and 20 years, the amazing, uh, the amazing effects he's had on our world. I agree. Nick, why don't we go ahead and give out your info? Where can people find you? The Life and Death of Paul McCartney, 94266, a very English mystery. Just, it's just got it on Amazon. And Tina, how about you? Um, I have a blog called plasticmacca.blogspot.com. So Macca, M-A-C-C-A. And uh, lots of pictures and information, lots of research about Paul and doubles and psyops. I recently saw your interview with sagesigma.com, and I thought that was really interesting. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, everybody. I sincerely appreciate all of your time. I think we, we went over a whole lot of data, and I hope this gets out there the way I, I would I would really hope, especially in honor of Sir Paul's birthday coming up, or James Paul McCartney's birthday coming up, I should say. Thank you, everyone, so much. Take care. I really enjoyed this interview today, but this show hit me in a lot more of a personal way than a lot of the subjects that we've discussed here. The Beatles have been a huge influence on me musically for a very long time, and the thought that all was not as I always believed to be is definitely disconcerting. As always, do your own research and make up your own mind. I recommend that for all of the esoteric and interesting things we discuss here. And let me say, don't let any of the things we went through today take away the magic that the music of the Beatles is and how it may reflect in your own heart and soul. The Beatles will always hold a special place for me, no matter what the truth turns out to be of what was going on behind the scenes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. (laughs) 